The people that eat here, they're why I'm doing it. People crave community, they crave relationship, they crave that personal connection with people. We are not designed to do life alone. We just can't, uh, at least not well. God is, loves us enough to make us interdependent people. It feels harder than ever to humanize one another. But the fact that they are a human means that they have an intrinsic value that is not contingent on their performance. I know they got no business being afraid of me. Let me be the first to let them know that by my way of being. There's a real connection with people. They are starting to pay attention. They are concerned and they want to be part of the solution. People genuinely sense that things are not right in this world and they want it to be better. Hey, thanks for listening to the One Small Difference podcast and our series, How We See People, where we are exploring how we can move past polarization and division and into a place where we see other humans as humans, not categories, but other people to be valued and respected and listened to. You know, the premise of our show is the common good. The only way we're going to be able to move forward together to make a better world for our neighborhoods and cities is if we can humanize the people around us. In our first part of the series last week, we discussed two big ideas. And it occurred to me as I kind of listened to the episode 600 times that (laughs) both of them have myths associated with them that sort of prevent us from embracing them. And the first myth is that People have to believe all the same things that we believe or agree with all of our positions in order for them to belong in community. That's a myth, and it's actually a really dangerous idea that does lead us into tribalism. It sort of sections us off into groups, and that's a really dangerous place to be. Chris really dispelled that myth and said, what if we put belonging before belief and said, like, it doesn't really matter to me what you believe. You're a real human and I value you. That's an amazing thing. Um, And it actually creates an environment for us to overcome that second myth, which is that we all came to our beliefs objectively. That's a myth. We're all formed by the stories that, that are kind of told to us uh, subconsciously and consciously. And because of that, we tend to think of our world as the world. And what happens when we start living in community with people that maybe don't believe the same things as us is we start to realize, wow, you've had a different experience of the world than I have. And so that's why you see these things different. And the stories start to open up. And that's a real beautiful thing. Of course, all of this is kind of theory. So what about practicality? How do you actually open up a dialogue or a conversation with someone that you perceive to be different from you? Because that can be really scary. And there are some things that we might actually be afraid of. We're going to talk about those things in this conversation and how to move past them. This is part two of How We See People. Thanks for listening.
So when it comes to asking questions, I know that that is a really important thing and it's something that I want to do. Sometimes the reason that I don't want to ask questions of people that I disagree with or people that are, are very different than me, that have different worldview than me, is because I'm a little bit afraid of them having a valid perspective, right? And if they have a valid perspective, that means that I'm going to have to maybe change something about mine. And um, so I'm just, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. I think that's good to even question, like, why, why are we afraid to admit that what we know or what we think we know might be flawed in some way? Why are we afraid of that? And I think it might be important to explore why do we feel that way? Well, I mean, so like if you think about it, you have politics, which everybody's talking about right now, and that categorizes people. And you have religion, which is intimidating, and that categorizes people. But what we've been talking about here is the process of humanizing people, actually mm -hmm. recognizing them not as a category, but as an individual, as a person, as a human, just mm -hmm. like us, which means that they no longer can be seen as the category that we're reacting against. Mm -hmm. For some people, when that process happens, that's a threat. And as we've been talking, I've realized um, that the things that we take for granted are often the areas that we have blind spots in. So the things that don't even cross my mind, the things that don't register as an issue to have a conversation about are the issues that we've never talked about. And when somebody mm -hmm. who's different than us brings up a, a need or, uh, or states something in a way that feels uncomfortable, our reaction is to say that's not valid. But the fact is that their perspective probably holds more validity than we want to admit. But that means that we have to recognize, we have to be self-aware of our own biases. That's going to expose us to ideas that we otherwise wouldn't be exposed to, which leads to growth and allows us to respect and accept others that have a differing perspective that's also valid. There's a lot there. There's, there's even the belief system that others are different than us, right? Before we even have the conversation about the thing that we've said is different about us because what we really could do if we wanted to shift into more of that narrative conversation would be able to talk about perception. I perceive that we have differences. Can I ask you some questions to see um, what you believe about this, how all your cultural values work into this? I become a student of what um, a life is about instead of a protector of what I believe the only perspective of life is about, right? So if I say we're different, that's an absolute statement that now you have to either defend how we're the same or you have to um, decide how you want to leverage the difference and whether or not that is equal. But if I perceive that we might have differences, then we can go on a journey of understanding without losing our ground for what we believe is truth and knowledge. And actually our knowledge grows and our truth can remain our truth in that scenario while we still understand things that we thought were going to be different are actually much more the same. We just didn't have margin to get to the depth of them. So that would be, that'd be one thought that I said. And even Kevin, when you had the illustration early on, 
um, you alluded to a community of uh, businessmen that you and David were, were talking about, right? And that when you ask the question of how do I ask these questions about this group, my immediate response was, I don't know how well do you know them? Um, like, have you had a meal together? Have you sat at a ball game together? Like relational currency is so high right now. We believe that as complete strangers, we should be able to dive into the depths of belief systems and traumatic experiences and why we're on one side and someone else is on the other when we don't know what this person would order at a coffee shop, right? Like we have so like, but we're, we're feeling the burden that we have to know one another's uh, systemic perspectives on such a deep level that we're skipping over the simple acts of getting to know someone's name and their children's name or their cousin or their mom or their favorite sports team because those aspects of identification humanize us and we keep searching until we find a place of commonality, right? Like if we're going to search for the common good, then let's go out on a journey to search for the common good instead of expecting that there is no common good and that we're just different. And we need to like debate that out until you come to my side. Uh, even the idea of the common good. I mean, we're talking about a community of people and are we even aware of the types of people that make up our community? Who are the people that are common around us and are, are we intentionally engaging in that pursuit of community with everybody in our space? Or do we close off a corner of our community that's safe and insulate ourselves from things that we're afraid of? Yeah, because historically we've been taught so many different times that if you don't protect what is good, the world is evil and it will take it away. Right. So we have a very protective approach to even goodness. Once we find some good, protect the good, make it common amongst those of you who agree that that one thing is good and then protect it against the enemies that would want to come and kill and destroy. And we've grown up on like television shows, books, movies, all of those things that portray this, this idea that we need to protect, um, and we've also tied that inviting others to belong means that we are either uh, blessing or affirming beliefs that we don't necessarily agree with, right? So I, if I'm going to let you live here, then that means I'm affirming however you want to live here. And that those two things are tied together instead of saying, because you've chosen to live here, I'm hoping and I'm longing for you living here, being part of us pursuing the common good so that all of us can live here. And those approaches start to shift when you add bad things and bad actions and tragedy and all of those things in that we get protective that we're like, I I'm willing to pursue the common good until somebody gets hurt. And then when someone gets hurt, I'm taking mine and I'm going to protect it. And that's where we end up in this like kind of defensive posture all of the time. It's a, it's a huge scarcity mentality. So Kevin, when you ask a question about like people that are close to you and, and engaging in that conversation, um, are you afraid that 
the knowledge that you will unlock in having differing opinions will change your perspective of that person or that it will force you to let go of some of your own belief system or third, I guess I'll add a third, or it will be misinterpreted and look as affirmation of behavior that you believe is detrimental to the common good. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I would say all three to some extent. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think the, I think probably anybody that's listening could relate to one of those three things. Like those are the things that we are afraid of. Mm. And it is it is actually fear that makes us not have those conversation. Mo- most of mm-hmm. the the things that are happening right now, the Facebook memes, the the mm-hmm. attitudes surrounding some of these things, they're all grounded in fear. Fear mm-hmm. that causes us to retreat and go back into tribalism fear that just results in deeper division. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree, it's, it's one of those three things that you just said. I think those are great things to contemplate for any person. Like when yeah. you, when you feel that resistance or fear about any particular thing, um, asking which thing am I afraid of right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would ask it like which elephant is in the room, right? Because those are kind of like elephants in the room that we're all trying to work around in these conversations or with whoever. Um, And the second question I would ask is, are any of them imaginary, right? Some of those may be real fears and we address it together of saying, hey, I want to have this conversation with you. Um, But I will tell you that uh, you may see me back off of this because I'm not sure that by having this conversation, if you will feel whatever that is and the other person can say, yeah, I'm concerned about that too. Or you're right. And we, I, I know a, a few friends who would actually say, then you just better not have the conversation because my opinion is not changing. Okay. Well now I know, right. This elephant is real and it is in the room <laughs> and we need to get around it. But, but some of those may, may be imaginary elephants. All of a sudden the fear disappears because that elephant wasn't really in the room. It's an imaginary elephant or an imaginary fear that we put up because we're afraid of, there's probably something else that we're actually afraid of. Um, we're not afraid of having the conversation with this person. We're actually ha- afraid of having this conversation with ourselves. So is, is the elephant imaginary or is the elephant real? That is your fear. And the only way you can have that is to try to reach out and touch it and see if it's there. With the context of our impact in shaping culture, maybe two generations down the road, starting with our children and then our grandchildren and recognizing the fact that the narratives that we pass to our children and the spaces that we create for conversation around these challenging topics are our responsibility. Do you have any suggestions on how to frame that up well so that we succeed in giving our children access to explore these important issues and then have a more well-informed background to make better decisions. I think there's a lot to asking questions and that's something we've learned and practiced with our children. Um, And really that started about a year ago after a training I went through on diversity and as a white female, there were things I had never considered before. And one of the questions were, you know, have you ever at the dinner table talked about race as a family? No, we had not really done that. Um, And the other people in the room, 
not the same skin color of me, um, how many times they've had to talk about that with their children and just showing how different it was. Um, and so the, some of those conversations start very organically when you just ask questions. And so we've taken that approach for a lot of things that have been happening, you know, with our kids, just asking it as a question and seeing what their thoughts are, what they're afraid of, what if it interests them, if they've even noticed. It's amazing what kids are not even noticing. Um, <laughs> or what they have picked up on um, that maybe you're not even I'm proud of. I mean, I'm, we're still navigating that. We're still learning every day. Um, but what I've become acutely aware of is how much I did not realize they are getting from media, um, just out in the community, from a book they saw, a magazine. And I've never opened my eyes to that because I thought, well, I'm their influence or their teachers are their influence or, you know, this lesson that we sent them to, to learn, that's where they're going to get their information. And I've taken for granted how much noise is out there, even competing for the children, even on the Internet. And I've got to be a lot more vigilant because that is starting to shape those racist worldviews and mindsets on their innocence that I wasn't even on the lookout for. So I know that's something that we've taken to heart and it's hard and it's exhausting. Um, but you can't let that slip if you're serious about this. Um, how much of that is being shaped for them young in their little cartoons, um, the lack of diversity everywhere in the toys. So when you start being aware of that and looking at it, you can start making some of those adjustments or having those conversations to make it, to give it the attention that it needs. So, so that would be the only thing as um, we're struggling to learn that and do that better as a family that I find I'm not alone in of being a lot more aware about everything else, the white noise around. Yeah, I would add to that that um, parks and playgrounds matter a lot. Children being able to see children that don't look like them, speak like them, uh, maybe even play like them in a normal childhood environment is really important to play together, laugh together, learn together. If diversity only happens when there's a project, a people to serve, or a mission trip to go on, then diversity is still defined by disparity. Like there's a difference between us. And if diversity is seen in everyday experiences by where we choose to go to dinner, to where we choose to ha take a walk, um, just it doesn't have to be the intentional, we're going to create a small group that's going to come over to our house every week and we're going to make sure it's super diverse. That might be a giant leap and it's really unfair to uh, the people of color that you invite to be the one couple out of the eight that are there and then they have to represent all minorities in your space. But we can view media that has, uh, as Rachel was saying, like main characters and heroes that don't look like our children. And at the same time, we can go to parks and play and do do normal things in diverse contexts is really important, especially as majority culture. We want to go on a trip like to fix a problem um, instead of being with people because our, like our, one of our house statements is um, solve problems, serve people instead of trying to solve people. So that, because you end up serving problems and we want to serve our neighbor, not a problem, like not, what we think is disparity or division. We don't want to serve that problem. We want to serve our neighbor. Another interesting uh, experiment is we did this, took our children purposefully to a situation, an all black church where we were the only white people in the building. 
and just let them see what that feels like. Did they even notice? Did they have questions? Um, and to be able to talk about that, um, it was pretty cool to, to try that. So it's really good. Um, you know, we don't realize that that's the situation a lot of people are in every single day. Mm -hmm. So we can't even imagine that perspective until we purposefully choose it. Um, so I think for our kids, that's important every now and then just, you know, whether it's go somewhere where nobody else is speaking English or <laughs> go somewhere where everybody's skin is a different color than yours. So they can experience that. Um, because as humans, we're not going to seek that out ourselves. We're not going to do that until we, mm. you know, are forced into it really. So I think the younger that that happens and then realizing that having that awareness, it can, it can be important. Yeah. And we could bring that diversity into our houses based on music that we listen to poems that we read to one another art that we view shows that we watch together as families. We can diversify our community of equality without having to utilize another people group as an object. I love what like Rachel mentioned of just going to a church because it's not, uh, it's not project driven, right? Like I can, it's relationship driven, but it's a great conversation afterward to be able to say, now, you know, in our church um, where we go, there might be two families that don't look like our skin color. How can you now empathize more from this? Like, this is different. Like I, stand out here. This is, everyone came up to me today because I was like this white family in the space and they asked questions and some of them were good and some of them were really awkward um, and really forthcoming. Right. So being able to like it changes the type of conversation because then our children go up to a family from um, a different, maybe not predominantly normal in a church community once they've had that then they get to walk up and just like hey do you want to go to class with me like they just cut through it because they're like i felt that before and i don't like it so i'm going to ask you the normal question like do you want to go to children's church with me instead of like all of those things i think that that was that's a brilliant answer we can also bring it into our houses through like that's the beauty of art um that we get to utilize art form and conversations and tell stories right now um, especially with the extensive time that we have together. Yeah. And so like sometimes our children will be magically accepting of things that we maybe would be struggling with ourselves. Or even love and celebrate the differences. And that's, that's important too. Mm -hmm. You know, I found that it's harmful to say, well, you know, we need to be colorblind. No, we need to see the color. Right. We need to celebrate Absolutely. it. We need to, because um, it, it's part of that passive problem of saying, well, I don't, I don't see a black person. I see a friend. Like, you're not really seeing your friend because your friend is right. black. Right. So that's important for kids, too. That diversity creates a mosaic that is life. And if life was all the same color, it would be very boring. But all of us together create a better community than any of us by ourselves. What is one thing we can all do tomorrow to take a step like toward understanding? There's so, there's so many things. So I'll start with this. Uh, here's what I'll say. Find the thing that you are the like most confident that has to be true um, based on your stance and the thing that if, if it were November and you had to take all other issues off the table and you were saying, 
if everything else was equal, this one perspective sways my vote. Um, take that topic and study the other perspective of it. Like find the opposition's perspective and see why humans who were also created in God's image would have a difference of opinion from what you believe is simple, um, true and obvious and study that other perspective, not because everyone needs to change how they're going to make decisions in the world, but so that we have this equal approach to dialogue with one another instead of a polarized side that we're already on that just, you know, challenges one another. So educate yourself on the perspective that differs from your perspective so that you can be sure of your perspective as you're moving forward. Back in 2011 and 12, I read a book about Google's algorithm. Basically at that point, Google search had developed an algorithm that was basically designed to channel things in your direction that you liked that already aligned with your things that that you believe. Now it wasn't that sinister. It just wanted to filter your search results in a way that was customized to you. But the, what the book was about was this like silo effect that it could potentially have. And so I made a choice all the way back then, as many years ago, to um, start reading books that I disagreed with. And uh, the first book that I dis- that I read that I knew that I disagreed with, I ended up throwing across the room. <laughs> I actually, like I physically threw the book because I was so angry about it, and um, I never finished that book. But I have continued the process of intentionally listening to things, reading things that I do not agree with on the outset. And what has happened is that I have become more educated (laughs) Mm -hmm. on the subjects. And so I, man, I totally agree with what you're saying about that piece of advice I think is, is beautiful. It's going to be hard for if it's your first Mm -hmm. time doing it and you might throw a book throw your phone, you know, if it's a podcast or turn it off and And you don't have to finish it, right? Like you, like to your point, you don't have to finish it, but you can know what that, like, so if that opposing perspective caused you to to throw, it's better for you to have thrown a book across the room than a family member because it became a, a personal thing, right? It shifts from like, I can take these emotions that are coming out around this topic and I can put them where they need to be versus taking them out on the people in this world that are the most important aspects of all of everything. I would much rather feel this emotion about a book than feel it about my best friend, my neighbor, a community member, um, or the person in that, like the, the highest seat of leadership in our country. Like I, I need to take this out on the thing, not out on the person. And so by studying that, it allows that, it allows me to get to know me better in how I'm responding to this thing so that I can have better conversations so that we can all belong. I think for me right now, um, what has been challenging me, but really been good for growth is to not be afraid to invest emotionally in something. Um, And when they talk about, we're all, we're weary of quarantine. We're weary of COVID. We're weary of political unrest. We're weary of the next bad news that's going to hit tomorrow. And so we, we, 
we're trying to guard our emotions and our heart a lot. And, and maybe some of us are more prone to that by personality anyway. But some of these issues, most of these most important issues, we've, we've got to choose to invest emotionally. We've got to look at the hard things. We've got to sit with the hard. We've got to sit there and stew with it um, in order to really understand it. So that's something I would challenge um, people to do because that, that's a scary, vulnerable spot. But if we're not really, if we're going to, if we really mean it, um, it's more than just saying the right things and checking the right boxes and doing the right activities. We need to sit there um, in the hard and in the broken. So I would suggest we do that in a vulnerable way, um, something we don't want to look at, something we don't want to know more about, but, but we owe it to our fellow man, our fellow woman to understand and have more of that empathy. I'm really fascinated by people that spend their whole life in silos. Like they just listen to things that they agree with. And uh, I had this happen one time to me. Um, uh, I, I have a background in theology. And at one point, a friend of mine called me and they wanted to know about this theological position that I held. And um, the reason that they wanted to talk to me about it was because they wanted to figure out the flaws in it so that they could talk to their other friend that held that same position and, and win the argument. And it was curious to me because I was like, well, wait a minute, because what if like this perspective is the right one? But, but they weren't even approaching it like that. They were approaching it like, I have to figure out how to defend my ground. And so that's what I, that's why I'm going to listen and read to you know the other side. And I would say that that little suggestion at the end there, really ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I doing it just so I can defend my ground? Or am I doing it to really try to learn and make sure that I've thought through this whole thing? So are we actually interacting with different content in order to be affected by it? Or do we simply consume it in order to be more well entrenched in what we already believe? Mm. Are we engaging in conversation with things outside of what we're comfortable with, with an open mind? Or are we just assimilating information to create a war chest in order to win a battle? Yeah, there's a lot of that happening right now, without a doubt. This might be a good exercise. Write down the three most prominent voices in your life. And like when it comes to like these three issues, when it comes to COVID, when it comes to race relations, when it comes to the presidential election, what are the three primary voices that you're listening to? And see how diverse they are. See if any of them are challenging your presupposed ideas. Because if they're not, then how, how in the world would you ever end up in a different place? And if you're embarrassed to publicly reveal the three voices that inform you the most, what does that mean? My answer is Chuck Norris. <laughs> Chuck Norris and Chuck Norris. <laughs> Whatever he says is what I'm going to do. Because did you know that Chuck Norris is the only person who can drown a fish? <laughs> I, nope, I didn't know that. Now you know. I'm being exposed to new ideas. That's right. Well, make sure you guys join us next week as we continue this conversation with Chris and Rachel. 
And uh, we really dive into the idea of collective accountability, which is not a popular viewpoint here in the Western world that we live in, uh, but in a really, really important conversation when it comes to the common good. Until then, go out and live today in a way that will matter in a hundred years. Shalom. You know, we're so entrenched and we've shut down our critical processes to the point where all we're looking for is cannon fodder in order to make ourselves win the battle. That doesn't even, that's not even a, an actual metaphor because usually you pe- put people in front of you for cannon fodder and they get blown up so that you don't die. But that was butchered.